Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we share information that you need to know to be a good steward of your wealth and enjoy the luxury of financial independence. Today's guest is Daniel Kelly, a senior associate with Hodgson Russ, where he focuses on tax issues, including today's topic that concerns establishing state and local tax residency. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about relocation and the tax implications thereof, and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Chad. It's my pleasure. Uh, So why don't we start at the sort of 60,000-foot view and talk about a little bit about the considerations that almost anyone might want to have, regardless of what state they live in, before they change residency in the effort to reduce their tax burden. Yes, so really good place to start, and I think that whether you're, you know, high, medium, or low income, there are important considerations to think about in terms of changing residency. And today our discussion is focusing on, you know, the state and local impacts of your residency. But you know, there are a number of uh, attendant repercussions that that could flow in. And, and really, the key concept across almost any state in the country that has an income tax. And most states do, several states don't, and that really makes things interesting. But um, every state that has an income tax really follows the concept of a taxpayer's domicile. It may not be the reason a taxpayer is subject to tax in that state, but it's a critical concept um, in nearly every state. And, and the domicile concept is that you can only have one domicile. It's your principal primary home, the place you intend to return to when away. You can have 10 residences across the country, across the world, you can have just one domicile. And so for most residency analyses, whether it be in New York or in California or New Jersey or Arizona, we're going to want to know where the taxpayer was domiciled. And the rules for establishing domicile and breaking domicile and you know, who has the burden of proof, we'll get into that you know, kind of in the nitty gritty in a bit. But the first kind of most important concept is I have a domicile. I want to change that. You know, what do I need to do to effectively change it? And then you know, kind of if I effectively change it, are there still attendant residency tax risks either back in the state that I have left or in a different state? And the answer is definitely yes, because while domicile is very important, certainly states are not constrained to only subjecting, you know, taxpayers who are domiciled in that state to resident income tax. You know, several states have proffered statutory residency type tests or surrogate residency tests that would impose resident income tax on a taxpayer who is not in fact domiciled in that state, but who has established a presence in that state sufficient to impose the income tax. And I'll give you a couple of examples Great. just to kind of get us, get us kind of primed here. So, you know, you have your, your assume for a second that you're a taxpayer domiciled in New York state. Um, there's, you know, 19 million of those folks who are, you know, permanent primary residents of New York and you begin spending time in California and in your time in California is not, really for a a kind of narrow specific purpose. You know, you're in California indefinitely. You're spending most of your time in California. You know, you bought a home in California. You're working in California. You're there for a few years. 
all of a sudden, you know, the rules in California would say it doesn't matter if you're domiciled in New York, if you are in California for an other than temporary or transitory purpose, then you're a tax resident in that tax year, even though your domicile stays back in New York. So now this person who is making their primary home in New York, you know, has a New York driver's license, registered to vote in New York, maintains their primary home with all of their stuff in New York. Uh, maybe their spouse is back in New York. All of a sudden they could be facing double, double taxation. And, and that kind of set of facts can, can be, you know, present between New York and California, between California and Arizona, between New York and New Jersey, New York and Connecticut, um, just because states have different rules that if you're either not aware of them or if you're not, you know, properly planning to make sure you don't kind of fall into them, you can wind up double taxed. If you're not double taxed, perhaps you're still taxed when you thought that you wouldn't be. You know, if you fail to change your domicile from a high tax state to a low tax state, if you attempt to leave on July 1st of, of 2020, but in fact, the, the revenue department thinks you left on December 30th or 31st, and all of a sudden there's a gain event in there that, you, that gets picked up. You no, know, it just requires very careful planning to properly execute a change of residency and then to make sure that once the change is complete, you have an audit file and you have the documentation necessary to prove your change, to prove your location, and, and to be ready to defend what is, you know, really a pretty significant shift. Someone's moving, you know, I think it's properly viewed as a really big, you know, significant lifestyle change in, in auditors and revenue authorities expect to see, you know, a kind of shift in a taxpayer's patterns consistent with that change. Yeah. So it has to, the change has to be a lifestyle change as well as just where you're sleeping at night. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so the other kind of thought that I'd note is this concept of, well, you know, what, what event or what action causes someone to change domiciles? You know, it, it happens on a discrete date at a discrete time. And the key is, is actual residence plus intention. So, so residence without intention in any location doesn't change your domicile. And, and you could be there for 10 years, but if you didn't intend to make it your domicile, then you wouldn't actually change your domicile. But, but residents actually being in this low, new location, plus intending to make that place your permanent primary home of an indefinite duration. If you expect to stay for two years, it, that doesn't cut it. You, your domicile stays where it was. But if you have an in, intent to remain indefinitely and you're there, you can still go back to where you came from. And we can talk a bit about, you know, maybe some limitations on that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have residence plus intent, you change your domicile. And so it's, it's one of these things where, you know, taxpayers, we would advise taxpayers if, if they're, you know, kind of thinking about it and planning around it to try and, you know, really you know, bolster their case and to demonstrate through their actions that they're intending to make their home in a new location. At the same time, in New York and, in, and elsewhere, you know, taxpayers without perhaps perfect facts or with, with, you know, facts that may still favor the state that they were formerly domiciled in can still prevail if they have the requisite intention and if they can demonstrate that intent through actions, through testimony, you know, through evidence that despite what on paper might look like a retained domicile in state X, really their domicile changes state Y because that's where they intended to make their permanent primary home. So how do you how do you measure intention? I understand it's easy to measure where you're sleeping and those sorts of things, but the intention, what goes into that? What's considered part of the the intention? So great question, and it's part of what makes this work so tricky. Intention is necessarily subjective. You know, it's it's what's in a taxpayer's heart, what's in their mind. You know, those are things that are tricky to pull out just kind of on, on paper, through an insurance policy or through a, a photocopy of a driver's license, through, you know, Verizon wireless cell phone statements. You know, it, those, those documents may not connote a taxpayer's true intention regarding where they want to make their home and their, you know, kind of true primary domicile. 
So, so a lot of states have set up objective factors and standards of review in an effort to use those objective factors as a means to try and determine a taxpayer's subjective intention. So, so a, good, a good example would be in New York State. New York uses, like many states who are subject to uh, the Northeast State Tax Alliance, essentially an agreement of several Northeast states that came together to try and standardize and formalize this residency concept of having your one true domicile and then a statutory residency test, which is based upon this number of days you spend in a state plus maintaining mm -hmm. an abode there. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the factors in New York would look at a comparison kind of, you know, so assume you move on, on you know, July 1st, 2020. From July 1st, 2020 forward, you know, whatever the kind of period of review is, they would look at what's changed. They would try and compare your homes in, you know, New York and in Florida. Assume you're moving to Florida. That's kind of a very typical example. You know, the market value, the square footage, the amenities, and how you use the homes in each state. They would look at a comparison of your time. And time is, is both quantitative and qualitative. It's you're looking at the gross number of nights, days, whole and part days. You can look at that different ways in New York and in Florida, but also the quality of that time. Where are you doing anniversaries? Where are you doing holidays? You know, special occasions, birthdays. If you're if you're traveling on foreign trips or, or on vacations domestically, where are you going back after you're traveling? Are you going back to New York every time? You're going back to Florida, New York. You know, Florida only. Those those kind of things within the time factor. New York is looking at you know a comparison of your active business connections in New York and in Florida. They're looking to see if you're retired. Is there a lifestyle change that is the impetus or that is the the key element in this decision to move in the first place? Why are you moving? Everyone moves for a reason. You know, it's it's good to be able to explain that to an auditor why the situation is occurring as it's playing out and, and when. So the fourth factor is a comparison of your family ties. You know, family should only look at really your spouse and minor children, but it can also encompass, you know, in, in today's day and age, uh, a broader array of, you know, relationships, uh, where children live, where grandchildren live, where parents that you care for live, those kind of things. And then finally, a comparison of your items near and dear. Where's your stuff, your meaningful stuff? Not not your couches and end tables and lamps. No one cares about that. But the items that have intrinsic, sentimental, or monetary value to you, where are those items? And, and what a New York auditor and what an auditor generally would expect to see, and, and it varies every case. You know, there is not one set of facts that is right or wrong because taxpayers are also different in how they live and how they, you know, would in fact move. But on balance, the idea would be we want those five factors to point in a clear and convincing way towards Florida. Those objective factors pointing towards Florida that the auditors can then use to rely on and agree that the taxpayer's subjective intent was to live in Florida. And, and Chaz, you know, you didn't hear me talk about things like a driver's license or a voter registration or getting the homestead exemption in Florida or, you know, some of those other, you know, joining the library in Florida, those kind of things. They're very important to kind of take care of those steps and actions because they add value and they reinforce the timing and your intention to change domicile. But at the same time, you know, certainly the, the five primary factors in a New York review and in other states review, it's similar. Every state has its own kind of different take and spin on it. But, but the primary factors are where kind of the bulk of the energy during a residency audit is focused. And it's where a taxpayer would be wise to really kind of focus their efforts to try and prove the change. Because, you know, you can get every driver's license but if you don't make your move official under those five primary factors where a comparison of your real life connections would point towards Florida, you, you may face a challenge and audit you know, that ends up being pretty difficult. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's clearly not a, just a simple checklist. It has to be considered in terms of the lifestyle of the, of the individual and the family, et cetera. It's not just get your driver's license, stay there 180 nights, whatever the case may be. It's, it's, much, it's much more subtle and fine tuned than that. And, and it's specific. You know what I mean? It's every, every taxpayer has 
something going on. They have a unique set of facts. They have mitigating facts. And, and if there's something that's different or unique, you want to figure out how to document it, how to explain it, potentially how to rationalize it, mm-hmm. you know, to address it in the context of a potential audit or, or of just some kind of dispute that could arise. And, and one other point to mention about kind of at a high level, these residency concepts, I mentioned that there's this concept of domicile that's very important. There's this concept in, in California and in Illinois and some other states of this temporary or transitory purpose where you can be taxed there if you're kind of just there indefinitely without changing your domicile, but you're just in that state or your connections are closer in that state than they are in your state of domicile. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, kind of key thought there is this, this statutory residency. And, and so many folks, you know, have the thought in their minds that, um, you know, if I spend a certain number of days outside of New York or outside of New Jersey or outside of Connecticut, I'm not a resident. And that might be true, but domicile and statutory residency work together, but they are not the same task. So domicile is time is but one of the factors, right? I mentioned several factors. Time was one that you consider. Ideally, you'd like to see more time in the state you're living in than the state that you're moving from. So if you are domiciled outside of New York or Connecticut or New Jersey, now there's a rule or Massachusetts, you know, or Pennsylvania, whatever. I mean, if, if you're if you're domiciled outside one of those states, there's a rule that says if you're domiciled elsewhere, but you maintain a permanent place of abode in this state, in New York, for example, or in New York City, which are two separate tax jurisdictions, if you maintain a permanent place of abode in New York City and you spend in excess of 183 whole or part days in New York, then even though your domicile is somewhere else in a lower no tax state, you're fully taxable on your worldwide income to New York State and to New York City. And so, so you know, it's, that, that is a speed limit. It's a bright line test. If you, if you have an abode there, and you exceed the day count threshold and any part of a day could count as a day with, with pretty narrow exceptions. There are exceptions, but they're narrow. All of a sudden you're facing tax in that state, despite the fact that your domicile, your primary residence is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes those, those rules are conflated. Typically taxpayers who have actually completed a move understand the difference, but before the move, you know, there might be, you know, kind of some misinformation out there about, well, you know, if I spend a certain number of days outside of the state, then I, then I will prevail or succeed in, in being a non-resident. Some states, that may be true. Many states in the Northeast in particular, where, where there's a lot of activity, taxpayers moving, it's not that simple. You must, in fact, change your domicile and then kind of count your presence and count your days. Yeah. Otherwise, you, it's just a gross oversimplification, it sounds to me. And I think, you know, it's easy to get advice where you hear a snippet from someone and and you hear something about a number of days you have to be out of the state, et cetera. But it's much more complicated than that. And that that's clear. Exactly. So from, you know, in many cases, you have an individual who is thinking about retirement and they may live, let's use New York State as an example. They may live in New York State. Do you have thoughts on whether they should establish domicile outside of New York prior to retirement, after retirement, or is that just one of the many moving pieces? How do you view that? My view is, you know, retirement is an excellent point in someone's life to to sever a historic domicile because for the first time in maybe 20, 30, or 40 years, you're able to live wherever you want to live. Your, your, your kind of day-to-day location is not tied to a, a desk or not tied to an obligation or a business right down the road. You're a free agent. In some ways, Chaz, it'll, it will depend on what the taxpayer wants to accomplish. Does the taxpayer want to work in retirement? You know, does the tax, taxpayer want to kind of continue working and set up an office in Florida? They want to go, you know, kind of incorporate an LLC to continue operations from Florida. They want to maintain the Florida branch office. You know, some folks will want to pivot and actually expand their business if, in fact, it makes sense 
from a business perspective. Other folks say, look, I'm done. I'm out. You know, I, I've, I've put in a long career. You know, that's, I'm, I'm happy with what I've accomplished. Ready to go. And they may move the day after they retire or the week after they retire. It's, it's very common to see folks retire and then move. There, there are often considerations that, that taxpayers need to think about, and they make sense to think about where you may be expecting to earn a million or two million or three million dollars in retirement from you know qualified retirement plans, non-qualified retirement plans, ordinary gains, interest dividends and capital gains, board service fees, maybe some occasional gambling winnings, whatever whatever kind of income you might generate in retirement or losses. You know, there might be something big on the on the immediate horizon around a retirement or around a sale event. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back to decades ago, um, from the you know the Supreme Court of the United States, and, and carried on down to to cases across the country, it's okay to to manage your tax affairs in a way that reduces the tax within the bounds of the law. You have no obligation to to kind of pay, you know, the IRS or New York State or any other state more tax than the law would require. So if you if you effectively and successfully change your domicile prior to earning income, you know, you can potentially save a significant amount of money depending on the source of the income and the character of the income and that kind of thing. So so some folks, you know, will see potentially an income event coming and determine that, you know, whether or not it's going to happen, whether it's one year, five years, 10 years, um, and determine that, you know, they, they don't want to be a resident in a state that would tax that, you know, at a very high rate. Um, they've already paid a lot of tax to that state, for example, and, and they may move prior to that sale event. That that's everyone's prerogative to do that. But it's part of the reason that audits can can be, you know, kind of focus on these issues are because the states want to make sure that you have kind of changed your residency correctly. Um, if in fact you're going to not pay any tax on, you know, your retirement gains, your retirement payments, you know, uh, whatever gains you might earn or accrue or generate in retirement or after you've moved. So I guess it's just a, a way of saying that there is no right answer. I think that that having that significant lifestyle shift creates an excellent kind of springboard upon which you could move into changing your domicile. You could actually move, but but also people need to be thinking about all right, look, you know, if I'm going to make four million dollars in in the first year after my retirement, you know, in in whatever payments I might receive, first of all, am I still paying tax to New Jersey on that payment because I, I earned it all in New Jersey, or is it is it something that would not be taxed as an intangible that I could actually you know not pay tax on only sorts it to my state of residence down in Florida? There's those types of questions and also questions of, you know, if I do move and I do change my domicile and I've retired, you know, what are the potential savings? You know, certainly there may be, you know, even estate tax considerations if there are not income tax considerations. You know, I've been talking about, you know, kind of current year savings. You know, the state of New York has a significant estate tax. Mm-hmm. The state of Florida has no estate tax. So, so many folks may be driven by the idea that, look, you know, I have control now in retirement to live wherever I want. Maybe I won't mm-hmm. save any money. Maybe I'm still paying New York you know, significant tax on my, my holdings there or whatever, you know, kind of income I might generate. But, you know, there may be an opportunity to avoid a significant estate tax within the bounds of the law, again, by, by you know, moving and making my new home in Florida. You know, things people think about. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. The, the kind of payments that might come in in the first couple of years after retirement that you're referencing could be deferred compensation and all those sorts of things that may, that may come along with retirement. Is that, that what, you're, what you're referencing there? Yes. So, so, you know, a, a common set of facts, you know, you work for a company for 20 years mm-hmm. and, you know, you retire, you separate from service and you receive a severance and you, you continue to vest and continue to earn income with restricted shares and non-qualified stock options. Mm-hmm. And you have a non-qualified deferred compensation plan that may be subject to the federal protection of only being taxed in your state of residence. 
um, or you may have a qualified you know, a retirement plan or stream of income, a pension, 401k distribution, whatever you might have, that also will only be taxable in your state of residence in retirement. And so some of that stuff, you know, some of that income, you might, you know, not pay any tax to New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut on wherever you're coming from. But others, you know, for example, the RSUs and the non-qualified stock options, you know, there might not be a true, you know, kind of 100% savings there. You might be allocating a significant chunk of that income, even received as a Floridian, back to New York or back to New Jersey or Connecticut based upon work days and prior periods. Understood. Yep. So, so there's, there's kind of this residency is very, very important, but the kind of final shoe to drop in an analysis like this is a determination of whether or not your income received as a non-resident, once you've kind of been agreed to have moved is taxable in the, the state that you came from or another state or states based upon, you know, a, a kind of sourcing in that state, even after you've moved. That's helpful. Thank you. In your experience, when you're brought into situations where people have moved and thinking thinking that they're changing their domicile and it's doing all the things they should be doing, is there any common mistake that you see made or mis- misperception or anything that you would like to heighten the listener's sensitivity to when they're considering this ch- these changes? Definitely. And if you've attended one of my speeches, you may have seen, you know, kind of a a top 10 list or something of, you know, some things that we see that maybe send the wrong signals. But the truth is, in in many cases, folks are just not appraised of all the rules like we are, or like the tax department is in whatever jurisdiction they're coming from. And, you know, ideally, they shouldn't be kind of torched for for maybe missing or or having a footfall here or there. But things that, that we'd be on the lookout for, you know, look, January 1st is a natural kind of recycling date for a tax return. So, you know, what we often see is that a taxpayer goes from filing as a resident for full year, call it 2019, to a non-resident effective 1-1-2020 for full year 2020. And and the truth is they really changed their domicile on October 17th, 2019, or whatever date, you know, March 22nd, 2019, they changed their domicile from New York to Florida. Yep. And and for whatever reason, they may be filing a full year resident New York tax return, but but it just maybe sends a little bit of the wrong signal where you go from having this kind of full year resident return to full year non-resident return. And you didn't do anything different on January 1st. You woke up in Florida, you went and got breakfast. You didn't get a driver's license. DMV was closed. You didn't get registered to vote. The, the you know secretary of the state's office was closed. You know, so the idea is that people will sometimes use January 1st as, as a natural point of demarcation. But I think that a, a better play is just to try and be as accurate as you can on your tax return and also in kind of, you know, the preparation of your, your move. So, you know, dropping a statement on there or filing as a part year resident using, you know, a, as a resident from one one nineteen to ten seventeen nineteen, and then as a non-resident thereafter, you know, whatever, those, those are a small thing to keep in mind, but I think an important thing. And again, if you don't do that, it's not that big of a deal in my view, because honestly, you just probably thought, Hey, this, I'm, I'm going to be conservative and, and go from this full year forward. Or, or you just went with the tax software that kind of pushed you into this model of going on a full year resident to full year non-resident return. Um, but, but that's one to keep in mind, Chaz. Another is, this is technical, but I think it's important and it's an interesting concept to raise with, with folks who might be under the misconception that if they move and then get paid, they'll avoid paying tax to New York on those payments. And, and maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe if you do move, and then receive streams of income, you will avoid some or all New York tax based upon the fact that many you know, taxpayers are cash basis and they only pay tax when the income is received. But in the year that you change domicile, either, you know, let's use 2020 for an example. If in 2020, you change your domicile from New York to Florida, 
you are shifted under the New York tax law from a cash method of accounting to an accrual method of accounting. And the idea there is that you basically determine as of the date you move out, what items of income would accrue under federal concepts of accrual taxation, which is that, you know, have all events been met, which fix the taxpayer's right to receive that income? And can they tell with reasonable certainty the amount they're going to receive? If you've answered both of those questions, yes, with a stream of income that you have not put in your pocket yet, but that you will receive in the future, as for example, you have an installment sale payment coming in the future that you haven't received yet from selling something a year or two before, or a sale is effectively closed and, and everything is done. It's actually closed. You're just waiting on a payment and the payment comes in your Floridian. It's possible that New York would still be able to tax those payments received as a non-resident under this accrual concept. And so it's an important thing to keep in mind. And, and you know, it's a cliche, but we call it, you know, it's the accrual rule, which can be a cruel rule because, you know, <laughs> folks may, may not be ready for it. And so, so that's one to keep in mind too, where, where, and we've seen a number of cases come out that way. I mean, look, in, in the accrual rule, is not, how do I put it? If the deal hasn't closed, if you haven't sold your house yet, if you haven't sold the business, if, if the income is not fixed and if all events have not occurred, you know, which fix your right to the income or you don't know what you're going to receive, if it's a you know publicly traded stock, for example, which can fluctuate every day, you know, it, it won't accrue. But, but it's just one of these things where, you know, people thinking about this in a way that, that otherwise might seem straightforward, it might not be because in that year you move, your, your, your method of accounting shifts, and also, again, using that Jan 1 example, if you go from being a full year resident in 2020 to a full year non-resident in 2021, it, the accrual rule is like a full calendar year basis there. They, they, they mark it kind of at the end of 2020 is when they would test it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's one to keep in mind. It's one that I think, you know, if you're savvy in, in thinking about how this could impact you, you know, it's one something that taxpayers should think about. That's one that, that pops up. Honestly, Chaz, the, the biggest thing is this idea of counting days, I would say. You know, counting days, folks may not realize that if you go to bed in New York on Saturday and, you know, wake up in New York on Sunday at 4 a.m. and drive to JFK and fly to Florida, that's two days in New York. You know, and, and when, when folks are counting days, they might not appreciate that. They might, they might count Saturday, but not Sunday. Um, you know, or if you're coming in from Pennsylvania and you go to New York just for a business meeting um, and you're there for two hours, that's a day in New York. That comes up time and again where, you know, people may not be fully appreciating what a day in New York would mean for that 183 day test and their surprise on the backside. And, and that's one that can be avoided just by understanding that any part of a day is a very broad concept. From my perspective, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that error would seem to be really fundamental and one that is likely to cause more problems than one of filing on January 1st rather than October 17th. That's exactly right. Yep. So each one of these has a different order of, there's different orders of magnitude in terms of these things. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. I mean, it's, it's the, the days issue is one that just pops up, man, I can't tell you, it's, it's a, it's a pretty common um, set of facts. And look, honestly, the rules are confusing. It, it could be that there, you know, would be better bright lines or, you know, a full calendar day or a period of 12 consecutive hours, different states have different perceptions and conceptions of what, you know, counts as a day in the state for residency purposes, but that's a big one. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be the difference between filing as a resident, as a non-resident based upon the number of days in New York. Whereas if you just have kind of like a possible issue on a tax return, just because you haven't maybe expressed the exact date of a move, that's one that's probably easier to maneuver around or to, to prove and demonstrate that it may not be, you know, what the taxpayer actually intended. But counting days, again, that's back to that concept of it's a bright line standard. I mean, if you're over 183 in New York and you have an abode there, 
over 183 in New Jersey have an abode there, you're a resident, notwithstanding, you know, wherever your actual domicile might be. Yeah, that trumps everything else, those, those number of days. That's exactly right. Again, from your perspective in, in terms of timelines, is there a guideline in terms of the amount of time that's required to establish a domicile besides the, the 183 days in that, in that example, in terms of just all the other things that you need to do that might make your case stronger from that perspective of time? The answer is yes. I mean, the, with regards to in the time concept of changing domicile, I mean, there's two things to think about. One is that, you know, your domicile changes, as I mentioned at the beginning, as of the moment you arrive in the new place with the intent to make it your permanent primary home. And so that could last for one week. It could last for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as your intent was, you know, to make it your home in that moment, your domicile actually changes. And, and, you know, there's cases that say exactly that. It's like, look, residents without intention, you never change your domicile. But even residents for one week or two weeks, you know, actually effectively and successfully changes your domicile. So it's, it's not so much from a, from a kind of temporal perspective, you can change your domicile very quickly. You can change yes. it over the course of two or three years and kind of creep the change in and get comfortable in a certain area and, you know, take your time. Some taxpayers go that way. Other taxpayers rub off the bandaid and they're gone. In terms of how much time you would maybe be expected to spend in a given state after you've moved, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of taxpayers are, are keeping their homes where they formerly lived. They're either yep. keeping their homes, they're downsizing into a condo or they're, you know, find they're going to their vacation home and they've gotten rid of their primary residence, that kind of a thing. You know, taxpayers are keeping their homes and there's no, there's no set rule. I mean, taxpayers have won and lost cases with, with, you know, different time patterns uh, over the course of the last several years. But what I would say is if you can spend materially more time, in the state where you're claiming to be domiciled than the state that you have just moved from, you know, you really, you know, could, could substantially improve the likelihood of a successful audit or the successful appeal in the event of an eventual review of your change of residency. And, and materially more, what does that mean? I mean, it could be, it could be two days in Florida for every one day in New York. It could be 150 days in Florida, maybe spend hundred in New York. I mean, it's it, because Chaz, the, the time factor is not the, you know, kind of only thing considered, it, it, it's kind of reviewed as part of this factor test of comparing your facts with your home, your time, your business, your your possessions, your family, all these things. Mm-hmm. So, so time, you know, for some taxpayers, it might be a very strong factor. For other taxpayers, it might be closer to 50-50. But, but the standard of review in New York and in other states, the party with the burden of proof is the party asserting the change. So for example, if a taxpayer is asserting that they moved from New York to Florida, that, that taxpayer bears the burden of proof to demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that they've changed their domicile. And so clear and convincing is not a 50-50 standard, right? I mean, clear and convincing, it's, a, it's murky. Um, it's, not a, it's not deployed in many types of legal actions. It's preponderance of evidence, what you think about in kind of your standard civil litigation where, where 51% would do it yes. for the plaintiff you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is, is effectively, you know, it's the standard in criminal cases for the government to prove. And, and it, you know, really means that there is no doubt as to the guilt of, you know, the individual charged. We're somewhere between that with this clear and convincing concept. It's, you know, a, a tie would not, you know, kind of bode well for the taxpayer necessarily. Although, you know, a tie could still be overcome in terms of your facts with credible testimony and evidence of your intent. Because at the end of the day, intention is so important. I know it's kind of like, well, damn, what's intent mean? It would benefit a taxpayer to kind of be careful and thoughtful with regards to their facts and actions to demonstrate what they've done to change their residency. End of the day, a taxpayer's thoughts, their desire, their plan, you know, some folks have this in their minds for 10 or 20 years, like they've, they've thought about it every day for a decade. 
and they're finally there now and they execute it. And then an audit comes along and someone challenges them without ever talking to them or seeing them or kind of, you know, knowing who they are. And that's tough to take, you know, so taxpayers can, can overcome tough situations, but you know, the, I think the best set of the best kind of idea, if you have the, the luxury is to think about it kind of going in to plan appropriately and to figure out, well, you know, where are my strong points, weak points, what can I do to potentially demonstrate that I've, you know, effectively changed my residency. And then once I'm gone, once my domicile is out of New York, for example, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that I don't kind of inadvertently fall prey to this, you know, statutory residency concept where I've spent too many days there, that kind of a thing. Yeah, that's, that seems clear from, from this conversation. Uh, what you pointed out clearly is that this is not just something you wake up one morning and decide to do. This is something that you've got to really give some consideration to, depending on where you live, of course. Um, but it's it's the murky part of the more subjective evidence combined with the residential um, requirements, the actual nights in the new location. That's not as cut and dry as many people would think it, it would be, at least from my perspective. And as a result, it just cries for planning well ahead and then executing really clearly through that process. That's, that's exactly right. And, and you know, I had, I had a, a client ask this week, well, like, hey, look, what's the amount of time I need to plan? And it's like, look, there's no, there's no magic number. There's no, you know, it could be two weeks. It could be a year. It just kind of depends on you and your facts and kind of getting your ducks in a row. Moving is very tough, you know, and, and things pop up and setbacks can arise and, you know, finding the right home or finding the right school, mm-hmm. you know, finding the right um, location. All these things can take time, even if you think that you have it kind of locked cold. So the answer, in my view, is look, there's no, there's no magic number. We could do this in two weeks. We could do it in two years. But, but you would benefit yourself as a taxpayer and as an advisor to give yourself as much runway as you can to just kind of think through the options, understand the rules, think about different sets of facts and alternatives, and, and really understand, you know, kind of what the repercussions might be from a tax perspective if you move. You know, some folks would be surprised that they're not going to save as much money as they think based upon the fact that they have, you know, income sourced to, you know, the states that they're leaving or, you know, the states that have an income tax. So, you know, Chaz, it's, it's, you're, you're exactly right. It is not it's something you do one day and just wake up and go. Some folks do that, but, but, you know, those are very easy cases. If you just kind of cut and leave, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, a case that you are likely to win, but, but there are cases where, you know, you do retain ties back in your historic state and, and that requires more thought and more planning. And, you know, I quickly add one other thought on your, your question earlier, which was a good one of, yeah. Hey, you know, what are, what are people sometimes, how are they surprised or, you know, what are just issues that you see pop up kind of time and again? And what is this concept of leaving and landing? And so it's a very important concept in a domicile analysis, this idea that it's kind of a two-part test. To change your domicile, you must, you must both leave and abandon your historic domicile, and you must land and establish in the new domicile. And failure to do one or the other will defeat the domicile change, and it defaults back to where it historically was. So use New York for an example. If you retire in New York and jump on your Winnebago and, and just kind of go across the country, you go to the national parks out west, you go to Florida, you're kind of on the road every month. You, you don't actually change your domicile under the operation of New York law, because even if you sold your house in New York, you fully left New York, you have no job in New York, you have no stuff in New York, you are not in New York, but you have not set down roots. You have not landed someplace else. You're, you're by definition on wheels rolling around the country. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that set of facts, your domicile doesn't change. And that's an extreme set of facts, but you got to think about that for taxpayers who might be inclined to kind of go somewhere for six months and six months and six months and six months you know, because they deserve it, they, they can do whatever they want. 
It's important for everyone though, if they're really trying to, you know, change their residency to stick a landing and then travel, stick a landing and then, you know, kind of move on from there. Because, you know, until you abandon, which many of these folks actually do, they, they have nothing left. Until you go land in a new place, New York will still get to tax you as a resident because your domicile doesn't change until you both leave and land. And that can surprise folks too. Again, that's, that's, that's a somewhat critical issue. And, and look, there are dozens of these things that we could talk about and kind of specific permutations and facts patterns that pop up. There are exceptions to residency, um, you know, based upon time spent in foreign countries and based upon kind of a lack of presence in New York. A lot of folks have issues that pop up with, with fiduciary income tax considerations in different states. You know, for example, I have, I have a trust um, that kicks off a stream of income. I'm going to move to Florida. Will the income that I receive as a beneficiary of the trust be still subject to tax in New York? Maybe. You know, th- there are situations where, you know, these things kind of run together in tandem where, you know, there's fiduciary income tax considerations with regards to resident trusts, non-resident trusts, potentially exempt resident trusts that folks need to think about. So it's not even just necessarily the taxpayer's residency but the residency of something like a trust or the residency of something like a family member that could impact the taxpayer's case and the potential, you know, kind of value of it. Yeah, that's this, it, it's becoming clear. Uh, I'm sure to the listeners that this is not a casual decision. You need to really sit down and plan this out and, and your personal facts pattern or the fact pattern of your family can vary significantly from one, from one group or one person to the next and significantly change the strategy or the things that need to be done to, to establish that residency, residency and domicile. And I think this is really helpful, Dan. Thank you so much for your insights. It's my pleasure. I mean, it's, we, we see, you know, so much of this, this stuff going on and, and honestly, we didn't talk about much that, but the, the COVID um, situation has really, you know, maybe adjusted how people have thought about moving or how they, how maybe it accelerated it. They, they can work from home now mm-hmm. instead of being tied to an office in a certain state. But it's not just New York, but it's all over the place. People are now, you know, kind of resetting real estate markets in the country and the cities are going. I mean, a lot's happening. People are moving in droves. And so, you know, COVID presents opportunities to move, but it also presents, I think, some unique fact patterns that need to be perhaps considered with all these kind of tests and standards we're talking about. But also, you know, this idea that, you know, if you move back to where you came from in a year or two, that might be fine. I mean, a taxpayer, you can't predict the future. You don't know what's going to happen. You might hate wherever you went. You might love it. You might not. You know, the, the school might not be what you want. You can actually move and then move again. You know, there's one thing to put out there that if you're if you're moving now as a result of COVID or as a result of kind of something that it's something where, you know, you just need to be careful that your intent is demonstrated to remain indefinitely and not to have it only be for a limited period of time. And if, if the impression that an auditor would receive is that you moved for a year or for two years, the move didn't happen in the first place. You know, you didn't land. And so that's just one thing to think about is, you know, some folks are retiring and thinking about this in a, in a big picture. Other folks were displaced for a couple of months and then decided to move. And so, so both of those folks, you know, kind of groups of folks can move and, and have moved in the last several months and will continue to move in the future. Some of them are moving into New York from other places. The, the tax rates are not necessarily the driving factor in those cases. But something to think about that if you do intend to move, you know, make sure that your expressions and your actions demonstrate that it's for an indefinite and kind of permanent period so that it's not questioned if you do, in fact, move again. That's helpful. Like with many other subjects, COVID has added its own layer of complication to this beyond the health considerations. 
This is really helpful, Dan. I, I so much appreciate you spending time with me today on the Wealthcast, and I hope we can have you back uh, sometime in the future to talk about maybe this subject at, at greater length or another area of, of expertise for you. So thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Be more than happy to join you again. Um, hopefully, you know, you and, and uh, the listeners found this uh, interesting and then, uh, you know, looking forward to the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining Dan Kelly and me today for our discussion on the issues surrounding establishing state and local tax residency. For more information on this subject, please visit our website at www.thewealthcast.com. Thanks again, and have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.